Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. A few years back, we had Tracy Chow on the podcast to talk about her company, Block Party, and its first offering. Uh, There were multiple reasons why I thought then and still think that Block Party is an important company to pay attention to. For one, it was tackling a very real problem, which is abuse and harassment online, which many of the large social media platforms were really failing to do a good job over. But more importantly, it was showing a different and I believe better way in which we could allow third parties to build services on top of existing social media and other services, making them better while putting more control in the hands of the users over the large companies themselves. So while some may point out that the tools that Block Party uh, was building should just be built by the platforms themselves, we've spent so many years hearing about how these platforms don't have the right incentives to really handle abuse and harassment properly. So why not let somebody else step in and provide even more services with different and hopefully better incentives and structures? Unfortunately, uh, due to Twitter's recent API changes, Block Party had to shut down its original service, which had been an incredibly useful one. Uh, The company has, however, launched a new service called Privacy Party that also builds on existing social media offerings to help you better control your privacy settings. Uh, Tracy and I had coffee a few weeks ago and had a very interesting conversation about interoperability, incentives, and a variety of related topics. So we thought that we should continue that conversation on the microphone and release it as a podcast. So Tracy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Lots of updates since the last time we chatted. Yes, yes, indeed. So, uh, and there are a bunch of things that we can talk about um, in a bunch of different ways, but I want to start with just Privacy Party. Um, Can you just tell people what it is in case people don't know about it? I think it would be great for people to understand what it is that you're building with Privacy Party. Yeah. Privacy Party is a browser extension that helps um, with automations for social media privacy. If you think about your privacy settings on your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Venmo accounts, you've probably not gone and updated them recently, if ever, but there may be a lot of information that's leaking out there that in a bad scenario can be weaponized against you, whether it's with harassment attacks or fraud. Um, a lot of you know new things coming to the fore with generative AI and like data getting scraped to be uh, used for things like deep fake porn. There's just a lot of threats around your data now and Unfortunately, uh, trying to tidy that stuff up right now is not very easy. Uh, Again, going back to sort of the incentives question of like, what do platforms care about? Nobody is getting promoted for making your settings page lovely 
and easy to use. <laughs> and we see the result of it as it is very difficult to go clean up anything. I've worked at multiple social media platform companies and I have trouble updating my settings. Uh, so the idea of Privacy Party is making it easy to be in control of your privacy settings and helping people with guidance around recommendations if you aren't fully up to date on what are all the potential issues and also automations to make it really easy. So we're building across multiple platforms. There's a cross-platform product. Um, so for Facebook in particular, which is super gnarly to update everything, <laughs> um, but also some unexpected ones like Venmo, um, which I mentioned. I was surprised even to see when we were building this product, I have something like 1,500 friends on Venmo because it automatically friends people in your contact book. Huh. Like, oh, well, I've already locked down like the settings. Um, so my transactions are not being shown, but most people actually still have the defaults there, which is you have a feed of payments. <laughs> right. Sometimes with memos as to what they're for. <laughs> yeah. So trying to just help people there. Um, it's still very consistent with um, the mission of the company, which is just giving people more control and making it a nice UX and even, I dare say, delightful to have a safe experience <laughs> online. Yeah. And, and uh, it's really worth checking out. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's a browser extension and then, you know, after you install it, what I found at least, you know, when you first go to any of the sites that it, it works on, it sort of pops up a little thing that sort of guides you through, um, you know, making, you know, in, first of all, informing you in a nice way, like better than, than the sites do themselves of like, what are the potential risks you have this setting this way? Like you should, you know, be careful about that. Uh, in some cases, letting you click a button and it'll, it'll make the changes for you to protect yourself. Um, in some cases where I, where I guess there are limits on what the browser extension is able to do, it gives you sort of step-by-step, -step very clear instructions on how you can, you know, follow these settings, click here, do that, uh, to protect yourself. Um, and like I used it immediately once it came out and sort of went through a bunch of privacy settings. And I'm, I thought pretty careful about this stuff. Um, and there were a few things that it found that I was like, Oh, I didn't realize my settings were that way. And yeah, I should, probably should change those. So I found it to be super, super useful. And again, like a really cool example of, you know, of, of building the kinds of things that the, the companies don't, don't necessarily have the incentives to, to build right themselves. Um, so just as a, as a starting point, if you're listening to this and you haven't checked it out, I really recommend it because it's, it's actually pretty cool. And if you do believe in like, protecting yourself online and, and, you know, being careful about your privacy. I think it's, it's a really useful tool for that, for that purpose. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the original block party product and kind of what happened with Twitter. So you want to tell the story of what happened there? Yeah. So our original product, which we internally call the classic product to differentiate it from Privacy Party that we're working on now, gave users more controls around automatic muting and filtering, uh, more controls to be able to see things that have been hidden and take action on them, as well as proactively blocking people on Twitter. So you could, for example, put in a tweet and block all the people that retweeted or liked it. The goal of this tool was making so people can, again, have more control over that experience um, with some easier defaults. Um, you could say, for example, 
I'm pretty open, just sort of filter out the spammy stuff. Or you could say, I kind of need a break, be a little more aggressive on filtering and Block Party would just run in the background and go do some of those things for you. It was a very nice user experience because we could build on the Twitter API. So making those calls programmatically in the background and just run the service so that users wouldn't have to think about it. And it would just always be there processing on their behalf. Um, unfortunately, uh, with the change in ownership at <laughs> Twitter, um, a lot of things change, including some of the philosophy around decentralization and uh, pushing more control to users. Whereas uh, prior to Elon, Twitter had been pushing in this direction of giving users more control, trying to invest in the ecosystem and developer platform, and um, really investing in the health and safety ecosystem, in particular on developer platform. Uh, all of that changed, and there's very little that's still running on the Twitter API. Um, the costs went up to uh, an exorbitant we joke <laughs> price of $42,000 a month starting for yes. a tier of access that would have covered maybe two days of the month for us. Uh, and so there was no way that economically it was going to work. Uh, as far as I can tell from lurking in developer forums, even the people who are paying the $42,000 a month are quite unhappy with the level of support they're getting and a lot of endpoints just breaking mm. and not working. Um, mysteriously, endpoints will just disappear or stop functioning wow. at all. So anyways, a lot of things are going wrong there. Um, it's disappointing because we had a lot of users who are depending on our products to keep them safe and just filter their experience. Um, we've been hearing yeah. demand for the products now on the places that people have fled to, whether it's Mastodon or Threads or Blue Sky. Um, so it was very clearly value for users there that, in my opinion, was great for Twitter to allow to exist because it was stuff that they didn't have to build that was still providing benefit to their users. But there are a lot of decisions being made over um, at Twitter headquarters that I don't understand. I, I, it's no longer Twitter headquarters. <laughs> speaking speaking of decisions, I don't understand. <laughs> yes, um, but yes, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, the, there were there are many cool things. There were many cool things, unfortunately, about about the product, and and one of them was was even just you had this concept of, you know, the sort of you know lockout folder and and this idea that, you know, if you're the target of like abuse and harassment, which if you haven't experienced it, it is like way worse than you think it is. <laughs> it's like, it's an important thing to understand. People who haven't been targets don't, I don't think comprehend sort of the, the, the scale of it, the impact of it, the, the sort of just emotional toll, um, uh, of it and one of the really nice features was that you could sort of you know push a bunch of that stuff into a folder so that you didn't have to see it but you could also give somebody else access to that to sort of you know if you were not in any sort of state of mind to have to go through what, what was going on you could hand the keys over to somebody else without handing your entire account over to them and allowing them to do stuff and and it, it was just like a very very thoughtful and I think effective approach for helping people deal with um, sort of the the 
after effects of being targeted. Um, One other thing which, there to add is um, when you have been targeted, sometimes you need to collect the evidence and yes. document it. And the way that things work before, and I guess now again, um, is that <laughs> if you need to collect the evidence, you have to go through all of it and look at it and potentially be re-traumatized. And it's very difficult um, and tedious yeah. to do it. Um, and with that folder, it just kind of automated that process of collecting things so you wouldn't have to go traumatize yourself in the right. process of doing it. Um, I think it was the firsthand user experience I had in dealing with abuse that just so naturally led to these sorts of like product decisions um, that previously um, with platforms, they kind of like have the excuse that like, moderation is just really hard. It's hard to know if things are acceptable or not. Like our NL systems are great. They take down 99% of bad <laughs> things before you see them. It's like, right, but like 1% is still terrible. Um, but I think it was actually just a problem that was misframed as this is a machine learning problem detecting what is acceptable or not as a standard across the entire platform versus for an individual user, even at different times in their day, they may care to see different things. And if you construct the product in such a way that there is tolerance around over filtering so that you can go process it later, like that's okay. It can be a product solution to what was previously potentially framed as purely a technical problem of increasing the accuracy of your ML detection. Yeah, no. And I think that's, that's a really important thing um, that, you know, really sort of, you could see that from the product and it, it sort of, you know, to some extent emphasized the different ways in which the companies were thinking about this versus, you know, you from a, from a third party outsider perspective and, you know, how you were approaching it and sort of what, where your priorities were versus the companies, um, which leads into the larger discussion that, that, that I wanted to have, which is on these questions of like interoperability and third-party services and the ability to build on these things. It's, you know, it's sort of something that, that I've talked about for years and, and sort of, to me, always kind of harkens back to early days of the web where this idea was that, you know, that was the point of the web that anyone could build on anything else out there. And it was all sort of not collaborative necessarily, but, but just that it was, you know, it, that everything worked together in some sense. And if you saw something that you could make better and provide services on top of, you would do that. Um, now over the last two decades, the, the web has changed quite a bit and we've gotten to this world where it was a lot more siloed and locked up. And the idea of like, you know, controlling the data became became a you know more important to the companies because of their business models and then on top of it on top of that then we had all sorts of like there were privacy scandals and privacy issues and the way that we often reacted to that and certainly the way that some policy makers reacted to that was basically to tell the big companies who were sucking up all the data like do better protecting that data, which often meant locking it down even more and allowing fewer other services on top of that. So all that is sort of background to, to get to this discussion on interoperability and, and where, where do you see or, or how, how do you think interoperability of this type should work? Yeah. 
Big questions. <laughs> no easy answers. There is a policy paper you're familiar with that has come out of Stanford talking about the idea of middleware, mm-hmm. sort of a set of solutions that sit in between users and platforms that can elegantly solve a lot of the trickier issues that have previously come up where instead of having governments specify exactly what is acceptable or not and platforms having to comply with that, potentially very onerous compliance costs or reporting and transparency um, that is, again, um, very burdensome, pushing more control to users and having software that can intermediate that experience can allow users to have the experience they want, but without so much clear direction from the government, which has to constantly be updated and is never going to solve for everybody anyways and is subject to a lot of interpretation. Um, so I'm very bullish on this idea of middleware. Some of the tricky things, as we've already seen in this discussion of API shutdowns, is that you can't always build it because of technical limitations. Um, there are ways to try to work around it. So what we're doing now with Privacy Party is using a browser extension that has a different set of limitations. It's not nearly as nice of a user experience. Uh, things are going to break more often. There are still potential rate limit issues. There's also legal questions around scraping and browser mm-hmm. automations that still come up. Um, but there is a technical question there of what is feasible I do think if that technical question can be solved, the potential set of solutions, all the different types of products and innovation that we can see in terms of user experience and safety solutions or just customization, then can leverage with the market of a consumer choice, be able to push forward as opposed to just asking the platforms to do better or demanding right. that they do better. but asking in such a way that is completely at odds with their business incentives, which then will just lead to them thwarting any of those goals, working <laughs> around them or, you know, complying by this, the letter of the law, but not the spirit. Um, so I'm very big on thinking through what are the incentives and how do we get incentives yeah. aligned with middleware that is user choice a middleware provider is not going to have business unless it does things that are actually useful to the end users. And so it's right. providing value to end users there. It's different from the way that platforms are incentivized. And because it's per user, it allows certain things that platforms wouldn't necessarily want to do. Um, for example, just to talk about like one of the incentives that platforms think about a lot, growth and new users. Uh, new users, when they sign up, have no followers. They don't have very much activity. They may want to engage and start tweeting or Xing or whatever it is at like bigger <laughs> accounts. Um, right. And for a platform, they generally want to encourage that user activity. From the uh, established user perspective, maybe an influencer seeing all these comments from new accounts that have just signed up can be quite spammy. And so uh, the thing that may be useful there is to filter out user accounts because there are also maybe a lot of bots or spammy accounts there. Um, 
the platform is never going to want to build tools that help people to filter out new user accounts from their mentions. Right. They just completely at odds with growth goals and incentivizing new users, um, but allowing users who really have this need to be able to put something in place as a solution is very useful for the longer term retention of those users. So anyways, long way of saying, I think middleware is the way to go, like just pushing more power to end users and allowing them clients and services that are aligned with their goals. I right. think what's difficult is how do we get to a place where a middleware ecosystem is possible? Right. I am very keen to talk about this with you since you know the regulation <laughs> side much more than I do. I think there is something very promising about regulation that forces the market open and makes it possible for middleware developers. But maybe this is a good chance for you to opine on <laughs> regulation. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where it's tricky, right? Because it, it all, it, it does come back to incentives like you were talking about. And, and there's, you know, there's a part of me that looks at, you know, before Elon took over Twitter, like Twitter actually did have incentives to, you know, embrace and support block party because of all the reasons that we talked about and that it were, it, it was doing things that Twitter was never going to do, which made the, the long-term experience for many users on Twitter better. And Twitter would recognize that that was in their long-term interest, but there were short-term pressures against them building those things on their own. Um, and also, you know, to the extent going beyond just you at uh, you guys at, at Block Party, you know, Twitter sort of tried to set up something of a marketplace of of these kinds of tools. And I know that like um, at one point you guys were recommended within the the Twitter UI uh, a, along with a couple of other companies. Um, though I'll say I could never get any of the other companies to work. I don't know what it was like. Stuff would just spin forever and never. Anyways, that's besides the point. But, you know, there is this sort of like natural, like, I think the companies themselves should recognize it. And Twitter obviously did. So then the question is like, if you get, I mean, nothing that Elon does makes sense. So like, there's no like rational basis for, for why he shut things down other than he just doesn't understand how any of this works. Um, but there is a larger question of like, why isn't, why aren't, why isn't everybody else embracing this? Like people who actually do have, you know, more thoughtful long-term vision. Um, and you do see like little elements of it where, you know, in theory threads is going to support activity pub, um, which creates some, you know, activity pub, there's an API and there's not much development going. On. I mean, there's some, but there's not that much development going on just because of like the user base of, of, you know, Mastodon and, and other activity pub users is not necessarily large enough to, to justify that. But then if you bring in however many people end up sticking around on threads, like now suddenly have a slight, you know, a significantly larger audience. And so maybe it becomes more worthwhile. Now, that all is like me dancing around the actual question that you asked, which is like the regulatory side of this. And, and I think the, the problem and the concern I have is that I've, there, there have been regulatory proposals that are um, basically mandates, right? They're interoperability mandates. And they basically say, 
you know, there are different ones and they look differently in different locations. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're basically saying that for the big social media companies, you have to have an API that allows for some level of interoperability. Um, some There are some re- regulations out there that, that talk about um, data portability, which is not the same thing as interoperability. That's just about like pulling out your data and then having nothing to do with it. You know, we, 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 we had a, a podcast a few months ago with Chris Riley about who's doing the uh, data portability uh, project. I forget exactly the exact name of it. Um, and so there, there are some interesting things happening there, but, but again, all of those don't strike me as particularly effective. And I worry about the straight mandates of, you know, API access or interoperability for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you know, mandates just become compliance headaches um, in in general. And, you know, for the largest companies, like, it's okay, they can handle compliance. They have buildings full of, you know, compliance people. Um, But it still just sort of like creates this barrier that effectively, to some extent, locks in some of the bigger companies when you do that wrong. Um, And so I, I worry about the, you know, that sort of thing. The other thing I worry about with API mandates is that it, it's kind of a brute force solution. And when you have that sort of brute force solution, it also leads to, um, you know, potentially problematic cases, whether they're edge cases or, you know, more regular cases. And, and so like the example that is an easy one to bring up is like Cambridge Analytica, right? So if, there was a, a API mandate for Facebook, um, then a company like a Cambridge Analytica could make use of that. And in the same way that something like Block Party wants access to the API to build better services, there may be some more malicious players who want access to that same information for more nefarious purposes. And so the question then is like, how do you how do you distinguish, right? How do you write a law that says only the good people get to use the API and we will, we can only interoperate with the good people. Um, and I haven't seen a regulation written that really deals with that issue. Um, and so my feeling on the regulatory front is like the straight up mandates I think are, are problematic. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on both of those points. First, around the compliance side, totally understand that. Also, from a firsthand perspective of having to be compliant with things like GDPR and CCPA um, and the concern that it can actually stifle innovation by creating greater barriers to entry or additional costs in smaller companies is not lost on me at all. I think a difference um, between API regulation requirements versus something like reporting or compliance is that it's creating an openness of something that already existed oftentimes. So the way that any mobile apps are built is with APIs. Like that that is the way that these native apps communicate with the servers of Facebook or Twitter. And so it's sort of like adding on to something that already exists. And of course there's additional work to build something into a platform when it was just for internal use before, but 
it's not purely just like, oh, we need to fill out a bunch more forms or like hire staff to deal with reports. It's a little bit different than that. The, 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 before, yeah, the one thing I, I, I totally, that's totally correct. That's, that's, you know, 100% true. The thing that I worry about related to compliance is not necessarily just like the paperwork side of it, but depending on how the, the regulations are written in terms of like what kinds of things the API needs to provide access to, how it's set up, I, I worry that it sort of like locks in a sort of like, this is the defined way that your API must work aspect as opposed to a lot more. But anyway, sorry, yeah. go on. I mean, that's a, a separate question as well of like exact implementation where there are approaches that are maybe not so specifically spelled out in law, but it's like there's some you know regulatory body that you need to go consult and prepare your plan for how you're going to be compliant. I mean, there's more discussion about like what's a correct yeah. implementation approach. So you're not locked into something maybe, especially with technology where it, it can move quickly. So if there's a way to embody the spirit of what is supposed to be available, there's other ways to try to implement yeah. that. Um, in terms of the uh, problematic use case, this is also a very good question. And um, Cambridge Analytica is sort of the bugbear even within Facebook when people talk about, do we want to have more API or less API? It's also a discussion internally. Um, people bring it up as like, ah, oh, it's sort of a strategic liability. Um, like there are potential benefits for sure. And we've seen how API can be very useful. Um, they actually still have a very robust ads API because it makes them money. <laughs> right, so like yes. APIs are useful. Um, but the worry is that there's potentially, um, that liability around misuse of data. I think my response here is that Cambridge Analytica, kind of, like that whole thing, they were in violation of terms of service. And yes. so... I think there are ways to sort of describe like what are the legitimate uses of data and there is some responsibility for platforms to look at the use case statements that are written by developers and confirm like audit proactively reactively to make sure that there's not misuse of data teams like this already exist um when i was at trustcon i was chatting with somebody who um, works on the API abuse team at Google. She's like, yes, like this is literally what our team does. Like we try to make sure that people aren't misusing data. Like they do what they say they're supposed to do. Um, so there's a little bit more of a requirement here that platforms are checking that there's not misuse and they should be kicking anybody off who is using data in a bad way. Um, again, there's the sort of like, compliance, I guess, there and like making sure that it all yeah. works as intended. Um, but I mean, because even like, you know, you look at the Cambridge Analytica situation and, and right, like if you looked at it just on its face when it was happening, it wasn't entirely clear that they were actually abusing the API. Right. I mean, if you looked at it, it was sort of set up to be this sort of, you know, I mean, these were in the the naive, innocent days, I guess, yeah. you know, but but it was sort of, you know, set up to be this sort of fun, like share with your friends, kind of gamey type type of tool um, without the recognition of, of sort of like how that data was then being collected and used. Um, and so, like, you, you're right. And, and certainly the larger companies have gotten much better, too, about like API compliance and all of these things. Um, 
but you know, I still wonder about how that how that plays out in reality. Um, especially like you have you have there there are conflicting interests here, and I don't think that the policymakers have really thought through those conflicts as much in terms of like. You know, they, they want interoperability, they want competition, they want better protections of privacy, but those things don't necessarily all fit together. Yeah. It's like, you know, some of these things lock in the big players as, as sort of stronger. And then, like, if you want more interoperability, then it's like, well, now you're raising privacy questions. And, and I, it doesn't feel like any of these solutions have been thought out as, like, a comprehensive, you know, how does this impact the other aspects? It's always like, well, we want more competition. Therefore we have to incentivize this one thing without looking at, at the wider impact of the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point that there are multiple goals and they can trade off against each other. And this yeah. is the thing that comes up in all the trust and safety conversations for people working at platforms. Like, okay, if we want to reduce harassment, but then that increases misinformation, right. how do we decide and I think you are pointing at some good one, some good like discussion topics around these trade-offs as well with like interoperability versus privacy. Um, I mean, I think that's real. I, it's useful to discuss exactly like, what we want to achieve and what kinds of minimum requirements and safeguards we might want to have. Um, for example, just to talk about like what are the sorts of APIs that Block Party would need or other safety providers? There's a certain sort of data that we would need for the end user um, to be able to act on their behalf. So this concept of an authorized agent that's in CCPA, like you should be able to delegate to an authorized agent to take actions on your behalf. They can't effectively do that on a technology platform without technical access. So right now this idea that you could have somebody do things on your behalf is very, very much like an idea like sure you can actually like opt out for you in some cases and like submit an email to opt out um your data being on a platform but they can't really do anything for you without access to more data and there will be some trade-offs on privacy and that like well if they need access to the data they're going to see the data so like okay right there's some privacy considerations there um, but if you think from the perspective of like an, an end user, like I could see all of these things. So why can't my authorized agency right. these things for me? If somebody is tagging me all over the place and DMing me all over these platforms and I want authorized agents to be able to filter those things out for me and take action and block them on my behalf so I don't have to see them and be traumatized by them before some action is taken, then I need my authorized agent to be able to see that. Yes. Yeah, and 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 that gets to to another sort of policy angle, um, where you know, and I've talked about this so many times on the the podcast that like people who listen all the time are going to be like, ah, oh, not this again. But you know, we, you know, the, you know, uh, over a decade ago, right, there was this company Power dot com or Power Ventures that had built this tool that would create sort of like a universal. Uh, dashboard for social media and Facebook sued them and claimed that even though what power was doing was exactly what you were discussing, being an authorized agent, that a user would have to sign up for power, you know, say that they wanted to use it and then give them, you know, 
the the power of it's not power of attorney, but you know the yeah. the sort of power of authorized access to go log in to Facebook and other social media sites and pull that data out and present it in a in a setup that was useful. And Facebook sued them, saying that it was a CFAA violation, computer fraud, and a. Uh, an abuse act, which, you know, basically saying like they were hacking into the system, which was nonsense because there was no hacking. It was an authorized access because the person who had the login information was authorized to access that information and was handing it off to an authorized third party to, to go log in and do something useful with it. But Facebook won that lawsuit. Um, And, I think that was a mistake. I think that was a really, really problematic decision. Um, and I wish that it hadn't happened, but it, it does exist. And now it's provided this tool for the companies themselves to effectively block authorized agents from doing things. So now, again, we sort of have this conflict where they can argue it's a hacking violation for as much as as the law now says you have to allow authorized you know, you're just, there's this, again, this sort of weird tension. I think part of the way to fix that is to then change the CFAA, fix the CFAA so that it doesn't cover situations like this and, and allows for authorized access. But there, there was another CFAA case that um, happened last year that went to the Ninth Circuit last year, which was LinkedIn versus company HiQ. Um, as with Power.com, during the course of the lawsuit, uh, you know, power went out of business. Haiku went out of business. The big companies can drive little companies out of business if they want to, just by the cost of the lawsuits. Um, originally, in in like early last year, um, the Ninth Circuit gave this ruling in the LinkedIn case that sounded positive and sounded like a slight pushback on the the Power dot com ruling, which where they said that Haiku was not uh, violating the CFAA. Uh, by their own sort of, you know, service of, of going in and getting data because the data was public. So the, the difference that they established between uh, LinkedIn and Facebook was that Facebook, all of the content was hidden behind a, a registration wall, whereas LinkedIn, a lot of the data was public. So they said that that was fine. And so a lot of people have talked about that and said, oh, okay, that's sort of, you know, so as long as the data is public, then you can you can use it, except that there was a another ruling in that same case that happened late last year that got like zero coverage as far as I can tell. There's like like you know, three lawyers who wrote articles about it, and like none of the ma- mainstream media seemed to cover it. Um, even the ones that covered the original ruling um, that said even though it's not a CFAA violation can still be a terms of service violation. As long as LinkedIn puts in their terms of service, like you cannot do this, then they can block you. And if you violate that, then you're still screwed. Um, and so my original thought was that like we could, if we fix the CFAA and allowed for, you know, third parties to, to have authorized access again, like from the, like very clearly stated from the user who has that access, they can designate a third party, then we're okay. But now, you know, what the, what the LinkedIn high case was saying is that, you know, the companies themselves can block that with terms of service. Um, and it doesn't even matter if you fix the CFAA because the terms of service will allow them to block it. And so I again worry about like, 
we have these very, very conflicting interests and I'm, and I'm not sure where the, the, the policy angle is that fixes that. Um, because, you know, in part because the companies are always going to fight to allow, like, make sure we can have our terms of service block anyone from doing anything we don't like. Um, and, and that gets back to your whole thing with like the API compliance, right? Because they can come back and say like, well, this is out of compliance with our API rules and therefore we have to cut it off. But, you know, how often are they doing that because it's actually out of compliance and it's actually bad? Or how often is it because they just don't like what you're doing and, or they, they worry about the competitive impact of what you're doing. There are all of these things that it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of it here, which is like on the exact implementation and getting it right. So it's probably going to have to be something more prescriptive if there are API requirements that it's not just like any terms of service service violation you can kick people off. It has to be for specific types of terms of service issues like compromised data or national security or, you know, whatever it is. Like there's like a, a set of legitimate reasons. And so, I mean, I'm not a lawmaker that knows how to write exactly (laughs) these things. I think the gist of it, though, is clearly consumers don't have any control here or. Right. Yes. That that is the problem. (laughs) That is that is very, very much a problem. Like I'm I'm in complete agreement with you. And again, it's like I want to see services like yours exist in the world and and, you know, not just yours. I would like to see lots of them. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think anything that gives more power and control to the end users is going to be a good thing. Um, but it's a really thorny problem. Yeah, it's, it's, hard. You- <laughs> it's really hard. You think about things like the intersections uh, with investment and innovation. Right. Um, and in some cases, regulation will just decrease investment in a sector because it's harder for startups to compete. In other cases, I think with uh, well-designed, if it is possible, API regulation, it could open markets. Um, Right. And investors are always looking at like, where can we make money? (laughs) I actually just saw like an update from a fund. I'm an LP in that like two areas that they're specifically looking in. One of them is compliance tech. They're like, oh, regulation is coming. We want to invest in startups that are working on compliance tech. Like this seems like a thing we want to invest in. So I think there is like (laughs) actually quite a lot of potential around investors seeding more innovation in sectors. They feel like there is an assurance that the market will be here. Like if regulation has been created and companies have to comply, then there is that market for compliance tech. I think with API requirements where there's not, that uncertainty that a platform might just change owners and shut everything down. (laughs) If there is that certainty around the business, it makes it easier for investment to happen. Um, And like I've seen this in going to talk to investors where there's folks who are really interested in what we're doing because they see there's a clear problem. There's user need for it, consumer demand. And so they're like, okay, you'll figure it out. You'll work around whatever the technical issues are. You'll figure it out. There's other people who have said like, ah, well, what if the platforms change their mind? Like you have platform risk. I think that's true. Right. Platform risk is a thing and it's much higher right now because there is no guarantee of what they have to provide. It's sort of like up to them and the people that are in charge may change their minds or just 
make change altogether who is there. Right. <laughs> um, so I think if we look at the intersections of like requirement, regulation, how does that affect the market? How does that affect innovation? How does that affect the products that are available to end users? And what is it? the impact on the end users. Like, I just want to figure out the way that we get people more power, yeah. more control. <laughs> yeah. Same, same. I'm, I'm like in the same boat, but it's like everything I look at is, is tricky. And, and I, I want to believe because I'm still ridiculously optimistic about things, which is, I don't know why, but, but like, it feels like there should be a more elegant incentive structure that can be created that, that, actually makes it so that most companies, maybe not irrational ones like Elon and, and X, um, but most companies recognize that this is actually good for them in the long term. Um, yeah, there's a couple of um, analogous concepts that we had chatted about over coffee that I think might be interesting here. One is that idea of recognizing that safety can be a differentiator and a positive thing. Yes. So an example you shared was like, the way customer support used to be viewed as just a cost center. Right. But then some companies realized it could be a brand differentiator because that's the closest touch yeah. point you have with end users and customers. Investing in that actually makes sense. So like there, yeah. it's sort of like a, a switch that flips in the strategy. Exactly. Right. And and that, you know, this was this example that that sort of became clear where you know, for years, everybody described call centers and customer service as a cost center. And it was something that you minimized and you hired the cheapest workers available and all this stuff. And then, you know, slowly but surely, some people realize like th th there are our, our main marketing vehicles, right? They're the, the main touch point that many of our customers have, often the most dissatisfied customers. That's why they're calling customer service. And so if we want to like keep those relationships, maintain those relationships or strengthen those relationships, because there was, there was another study, you know, at a time when, when I was looking into this, there was this, there was a study and I would have to look it up, but it was like two decades ago that said that there were people had stronger loyalty to companies where something went wrong and they fixed it. It was how they reacted to it. Then the one, the companies where nothing went wrong whatsoever. If the company was perfect from the beginning, people still have this fear of like, well, what will happen when something goes wrong? And so the loyalty level was you know, somewhat lower, still high. But if something went wrong and the company like stepped up and did the right thing in response, the loyalty level like was way higher, noticeably higher. And so like, when you begin to think about that, it's like, if you do things right, if you fix things, like that's marketing, that's value, that builds loyalty, it builds, you know, just, you know, tremendous word of mouth. It, it So like customer service is a marketing thing. It helps your bottom line. It doesn't detract from your bottom line. And so some companies have recognized it. There are still plenty of companies that do not recognize it uh, and don't care. Um, often they're larger and they have less competition, so they don't have to think about that. Um, but yeah, so there's this idea of like, what, what will it take to get companies to recognize that trust and safety in general is, is a similar sort of thing? That rather than being seen as a cost center, which many companies view it as, it's marketing. It is a, a tool by which, you know, 
the where the friction occurs with with users where they could have a good experience or they could have a really really bad experience mm -hmm. and if you're trying to build loyalty of your users or customers or however you want to just frame it um a good trust and safety setup should benefit you in the long term even if it's more costly up front yeah how we get there still a little bit unclear <laughs> I mean, I do think well, like I, if there were regulation on this front where it's like you have to uh -huh. do this thing and then people thought about it more like, oh, it's actually not a bad thing to do. That also seems kind <laughs> of nice. It's like it's not just like a very punitive compliance thing. It's like, oh, like you should do this because it makes sense for you anyways. Right. Um, I think the point about competitiveness is an interesting one here where right now you kind of get locked in to a platform. It's, it's been really hard yeah. for me to leave Twitter, for example, because I built my following there and I can't move it anywhere else. So like, yeah. I'm still stuck there. And so I, there are some tricky parts there that maybe other uh, legislation around interop will impact. Um, but the other concept that came up in our discussion that I thought was really interesting was uh, this idea of immunity, legal immunity for various things right. and how that impacts um, company investment or their decision-making. And there have been some... Uh, like one of the papers that uh, you wrote, there's impacts of regulation in some cases where like reduced immunity yep. that meant that like, you know, there's less investment here, like less activity in the sector. Um, but you, know, you have maybe some more interesting ideas here. Like how do we play with that concept? Are there ways that that can <laughs> work to incentivize people in the right way as opposed to just decreasing investment yeah. altogether? Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously like, the, the major example of that, even though people misunderstand it and hate it, is like Section 230 um, in the U.S., which, you know, people hate it because it, it removes liability. And they say, oh, you know, it's it, they believe it's created these incentives that say companies shouldn't do anything at all uh, because they don't face liability if anything bad happens. That's misleading in a variety of different ways. You know, companies have incentives to have a trust and safety team because if they don't their platforms get taken over by absolutely horrible people and drive away everybody else including advertisers or you know anyone who wants to do business with them um, and so there are market-based incentives that actually you know uh, provide that and then the nice thing that having 230 immunity does is it allows the companies to experiment right and so we've seen over the past you know decade, 15 years, how trust and safety has evolved. Just even the, the phrase trust and safety is a relatively recent invention. Uh, and you know, a lot of that has involved experiments, the companies experimenting and trying different things and setting up different things and you know, visibility filtering, messing with the algorithm, uh, adding additional content, uh, having fact checkers. There, there's like, you know, the list is a very, very long list of different things where if you had a narrowly prescribed uh, set of things that you could do, then you don't get that experimentation. You don't get that adjustment. And, and especially when it comes to trust and safety, when often you're dealing with like actively malicious actors who are constantly adjusting their tactics, you as a trust and safety team have to constantly adjust as well. And if you had to get regulatory approval every time you adjusted, the malicious actors would be so far ahead of you and there would be nothing you could do to sort of respond to, to malign actions. And I, and I think that's really problematic. So the, the idea of having immunity 
in some form or another, creating a, a sandbox where you can experiment and the the market forces that are that are pushing you to be better leads you to better results, I think is is really important. So then the question is like, can we create a similar kind of structure for interoperability or API access? And so, you know, one of the thoughts that I've had, and I've talked about this a few times, is something like, you know, especially for the largest companies, the companies that we're most worried about on the competition front, is there some sort of immunity for like you get, you know, uh, uh, a free pass on on antitrust action if you enable this kind of interoperability and API access for third parties. And then you're creating this incentive structure that, you know, by its nature, I think actually probably creates more competitive uh, help than than antitrust, which is this long and involved process. And by the end of it, who knows what you're going to get? And like, do you break up Facebook into mini books or whatever? Or do you create this world in which you have to allow third parties to access uh, access your systems and create tools that allow users to interact with Facebook users without interacting with Facebook users, maybe that creates a more competitive environment at the same time as creating the incentives to allow tools like yours and, and many others to come in and build better experiences on top of the you know underlying Facebook setup. I think that's a more promising angle. Um, there's, there you know, there are a lot of questions that then come along with that. And it's like, you know, an antitrust immunity for what, for everything? Like, cause then, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily want them to say like, yeah, we opened an API over here. And now like, it's like a total get out of jail free card for every antitrust possible claim. Um, you know, it's, you, you can, you can picture the world in which like they open up like a small API that gives a little bit of access and then they're like, okay, now we can monopolize the ad space. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, no, <laughs> that's, that's not what we want. But, you know, I think, I think there are some really interesting and perhaps more elegant solutions to these kinds of questions rather than the very brute force approaches that regulators seem to take right now. It's a hard problem to solve. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. But but like, I think the, the one thing I'll say, and we should wrap this up because I, I can talk about this forever. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think the thing that i would i would really like and i think that we we could get to a more a better possible world if we were willing to to think about this more at a like ecosystem level rather than just like it gets back to the 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 stuff that we were talking about earlier where it's like these things are in conflict the privacy the competition you know third party access all these things in some ways are are in conflict with each other and if you're just looking at one of those problems, you're going to come up with the most obvious solution, which is like mandate this, break up that, um, you know, lock up our data, wh whatever it is, without recognizing how it impacts everything else. If we were to take a step back and say, like, let's think about this, how can we create this ecosystem where the incentives are better for everybody? Um, I think that there there have to be more creative solutions, like. I mean, we've talked about a few possible things here that I think sound better to me. And I'm just like one random dude, you know, thinking about this stuff. I would have to think that if we got like a bunch of smart people together, they could come up with better overall things that were like, oh, here's a more comprehensive approach to dealing with these things. But that doesn't seem to be happening. <laughs> 
there are people who are trying to convene. So hopefully we'll see more movement yes. that's positive on this front soon. There, there, there are convenings. I'm just not sure how influential they are, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Anyways. Um, yeah. This is, it's always fun to talk to you and try and think through these things. And I appreciate that, that you also sort of push me to think about, you know, the, the, the sort of your point of view on it and, and the arguments that you're making and they, they make me think more and I keep trying to, to figure out what is the solution to all this. And I'm, I don't, have it yet, but I feel like every time I talk to you, I get a little closer to understanding it all. And look forward to your blog post that lays out the solution to all things. And then we will take it to legislators and they will put it into action. Sounds great. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, I would not bet on that. I would not bet very much money on that at all, but we'll see what happens. Um, anyways, uh, thank you very much for joining the podcast, for having this discussion. It's always fun to talk to you. Um, so if, if you're listening and you haven't checked it out, go check out Privacy Party. It's very cool. Um, you'll see immediately once you start using it, you're like, oh, neat. Like there's all sorts of very cool things about it. It's very, very thoughtful um, in, in how it is approached. And think about all the stuff that we've discussed today, because if we want to see more things like Privacy Party and more of the kinds of thoughtful approaches that Tracy and others are coming up with, um, we need to figure out better incentives and a better setup to make that happen. Um, but anyways, again, uh, thank you, Tracy, for coming on the podcast and thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you.